At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 59, Prelude to the Korean War. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the Cold War, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation through our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Moreover, don't forget to check out the pictures for this episode on the website and to follow us on social media for all of our latest Cold War news and content. I also want to thank you for your patience as I did the research over the past few months for this series of upcoming episodes about the Korean War. I hope you enjoy them. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. The Korean War has been covered by a couple of different podcasts and can be approached from a few different perspectives, be it diplomatic, militarily, or culturally. In our upcoming series of episodes about the Korean War, we're going to be examining the conflict from a number of different perspectives. We will examine the war's political, diplomatic, and global aspects, along with a high-level examination of the military aspects of the conflict and their contributions to each other. I won't examine every battle and skirmish in detail, though. I will touch on the cultural aspects of the conflict, but as I am not a cultural historian, the cultural impact of the war will not be my primary focus. As always, please forgive me for any mispronunciations, as I do not speak Korean. If you're new to the podcast and you're here because you're more interested in the Korean War versus the wider Cold War... I still would definitely recommend checking out our episodes on the Chinese Civil War and Episode 58, or our high-level review of the start of the Cold War. These episodes will provide you with a great background to the politics of the region and the events leading up to the war in Korea. With all that said, today's episode is going to be setting the table for the Korean War, focusing on the events in Korea leading up to the start of the war in June 1950. This episode will outline the effects of Japanese occupation on post-war Korea and the early political divisions of the country. It will also outline how the failure of the American occupation in Korea contributed to the outbreak of the war in 1950. I'm not a believer in the geography is destiny school of history, but undoubtedly geography was a factor in the history of Korea and the Korean War. The Korean Peninsula is 575 miles in length, averaging about 150 miles across, similar to Florida, though bigger. Along its eastern coast is a chain of mountains, whereas its western coast is flat and muddy. Inland, the country is hilly, with broad valleys, terraced rice paddies, and its rivers are broad and deep. To the north of Korea, 
It's bordered by the Yalu River and China and shares a small border with Russia. The southernmost part of Korea is a mere 90 miles from Japan. The Korean Peninsula also has a number of small offshore islands. Korea was heavily influenced by Chinese civilization, yet still has its own distinct culture and the Korean language is comprehensible throughout the country. This may not seem like a big deal, but many nations such as France or Austria struggled with establishing a common language into the late 19th century. Having a common language helps to build a common culture and social cohesion. Korea as a United Kingdom dated back to 668, the Yi dynasty having presided over Korea since 1392. Much like Poland and Europe, Korea geographically ended up lying between Northern Asia's greatest powers, China and Japan. As a result, China and Japan deeply influenced the course of Korean history. As early as 1592 and again in 1597, Japan attempted to conquer Korea. Japan conquered large portions of the peninsula, but with the help of the Ming Dynasty, the Chinese and Koreans were able to repulse the Japanese invasion in 1598. For a long time, Korea enjoyed relative peace as a tributary state of China under the Manchu Dynasty until the 1890s. Japan's growth as an economic and industrial power beginning in the 1870s had led to expanded trade and investment between Japan and Korea, given their close proximity. Simultaneously, the Manchu Empire, the great benefactor of Korea, weakened and declined. Russia, another rising colonial power who had advanced relentlessly across northern and central Asia, soon sought influence in Korea as well. The Yi dynasty had also fallen into decline from the 17th century onwards. The Yi dynasty was distinguished by its exploitation of the peasants, corruption, factionalism, and brutality. Korea was essentially a feudal society with rich landowners supporting the Yi dynasty. The population at the time numbered around 8 million, yet the late 19th century witnessed a population boom, and by 1949, the population had risen to some 30 million. The vast majority of Koreans were poor peasants. Many were also slaves, a hereditary status passed down from generation to generation. The state suppressed merchant activity and a middle class barely existed. In 1871, the United States played an active role in attempting to open Korea up to trade as a small American expeditionary force fought an unsuccessful campaign to open Korea up to trade. Eleven years later, though, the United States became the first Western nation to sign a treaty of commerce with Korea. As America's power grew in the 1890s, Many Koreans hoped that the United States would replace China as Korea's benefactor, protecting them from other great powers. Yet America in the 1890s had very little interest in Korea besides trade and evangelism. The U.S. was still very isolationist beyond its commerce needs and primarily focused its foreign interest in and around Latin America. Indeed, it was Cuba and the Spanish-American War that resulted in the American conquest of the Philippines, which made America an Asian power. Back in Korea, between 1896 and 1898, a reform group of Koreans, the Independence Club, akin to the Young Turks, influenced by American concepts around democracy and constitutional government, instituted some reforms, but lacked the cohesion and commitment to radical change to overcome the landlords. Despite the monarchy's power to avert internal reform, though, it was powerless in the face of new foreign threats. 
a three-way power struggle developed for influence over Korea between China, Japan, and Russia, resulting in two wars, the first of which saw Japan defeat China in 1895, followed by a second war between Japan and Russia in 1905, preserving Japan's new dominance over Korea. After Japan's defeat of Russia, their rule over Korea was undisputed. Great Britain was an ally and more concerned with the rise of Germany and Europe. The French were preoccupied with their empire in Indochina, whereas the United States agreed to look the other way in exchange for Japan's acquiescence for its occupation of the Philippines. Japan did not immediately annex Korea, but retained the monarchy and appointed a Japanese resident general. In 1905, they declared a protectorate over Korea, but in 1909, the resident general was assassinated by Korean nationalists, and in response, Japan annexed Korea in 1910, and the Japanese army largely suppressed Korean independence movements. In the aftermath of World War I, Koreans petitioned this Paris Peace Conference in support of Wilson's declarations of self-determination. Yet Wilson's view of self-determination, as we saw in past episodes, was limited to the peoples of Europe. Moreover, Japan was one of the victorious allies and had no intention of giving up Korea, and the United States had nothing to gain and much to lose from pressuring Japan about its occupation of Korea. Despite a major uprising in 1919 and sporadic guerrilla activity in northern Korea, the Koreans were unable to undermine Japanese rule. Many of those who did were jailed, executed, driven underground, or exiled. Others sullenly accepted Japanese rule, and still others openly collaborated with the Japanese. Koreans could not expect help either from the outside world. Russia was consumed with a civil war, and China was racked by internal chaos. The British Empire had too many colonial disputes to be concerned about Korea, and the United States, the only major power with the strength to challenge Japanese rule of Korea, didn't want to risk a war or endanger its holdings in the Philippines or its investments in China. Hence, without international aid, it was pretty hard to resist Japanese rule. Unlike France in 1940, Koreans had no hope of liberation by friendly nations. 10, 20, 25 years passed with no sign of rescue from the outside world. As a result, large numbers of Koreans cooperated with Japanese authorities. Japan used the Korean landlords to administer the country, replacing the Yi dynasty on the top of the Korean social pyramid with themselves. The Japanese also rebuilt the Korean bureaucracy and made it into an elite modern civil service, educated in modern statecraft and management, opening up new professions in academia, commerce, industry, publishing, etc. Korea became a vital part of the Japanese economy, becoming a supplier of foodstuffs for Japan and a major source for Japanese investment. This stimulated growth and industrialization with the construction of infrastructure like roads, ports, and railroads. Japan also invested heavily into education, and by 1933, 20% of Korea's elementary-age children were attending school in some 2,000 Japanese schools. Japan, sure of its cultural superiority, sought to destroy Korea's culture and all vestiges of independence. The official language of Korea was declared Japanese, and all Korean children were instructed in Japanese. Koreans were forced to take Japanese names, and the Korean language was relegated to the status of a regional dialect. Japanese working and living in Korea also steadily increased after 1905, and by 1942, some 752,000 Japanese lived in Korea. 
The Korean police, although commanded by Japanese officers, was staffed primarily by Koreans. These police were very brutal as they were often targeted by Korean nationalists as traitors. It's important to note that after the liberation in 1945, many continued to serve as police under the U.S. occupation. Many Koreans had also served the Japanese army. These men went on to become the core of the South Korean army of the 1950s. Five of the first seven chiefs of staff and three of the South Korean defense ministers between 1948 and 1961 were officers trained at either the Imperial Defense College in Tokyo or the Japanese Manchurian Military Academy. Nevertheless, there was always resistance to Japanese rule. Korea, unlike, say, Vietnam with the French, did not consider Japan a culturally superior nation. In fact, the exact opposite was true. Many Koreans considered Korean culture and civilization to have been superior to Japan until very recently. Therefore, the Japanese occupation of Korea was more akin to the German occupation of France in the early 1940s versus the classical colonialism practiced by the West. The major difference being the much longer Korean occupation by Japan versus the German occupation of France. Korean political opposition to Japan, though, was splintered between those on the left and those on the political right. The Russian Revolution inspired exiled Koreans living in China and Siberia to establish the Korean Communist Party. As we will see, the struggle in Korea that emerged post-1945 grew out of the divisions of the Koreans that had developed over the two previous generations and were partly defined by the relationships of individual Koreans to foreign powers. On the right, from 1919 on, a body claiming to be the Korean government in exile operated out of Shanghai and after 1937 out of Choking. In 1927, a united front was established between the various Korean independence groups, but by 1931, the united front dissolved due to infighting. The right-wing provisional government was led by Kim Koo, who was supported by Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese nationalist. Kim vehemently opposed Japanese occupation and sponsored terrorist attacks against the Japanese. The other famous conservative nationalist was Dr. Syngman Rhee. Unlike so many other Korean conservatives, Rhee had refused to cooperate with Japanese authorities. Syngman Rhee was born in 1875 into poor Korean nobility. He became involved in politics early in life and in the 1890s as the Yi dynasty began to collapse. He spent several years in prison and eventually sought exile in the United States, where he obtained three degrees, the most prestigious of which was a Ph.D. from Princeton. From 1912 to 1945, he lived in the United States, minus a short stint 1920 to 1921 in Shanghai as the head of the provisional Korean government. From 1921 to 1945, though, he served as the provisional ambassador to the United States in Washington. In the mid-1920s, feuding within the provisional government reached epic proportions when President Rhee halted the flow of money collected in the U.S. to the government in Shanghai. In response, the provisional assembly impeached him and a five-judge board found him guilty. Rhee declared this decision illegal and continued to raise funds in the United States under the banner of the provisional Korean government. Indeed, despite it for a short period from 1941 to 1943, Rhee continued to argue with members of the provisional government back in China. Rhee, from all accounts, was a determined and ruthless tactician. He was driven by a sense of mission and a deep faith in his own ability. He was very analytical and had a great historical framework, 
yet he could become very emotional and difficult to work with. He was highly autocratic, yet claimed to represent the desires for democracy in Korea. After Pearl Harbor, Rhee felt it was only a matter of time before Korea was liberated and he could come to power as Korea's first president. He therefore badgered those in the State Department and in OSS to gain influence over American policy when it came to Korea. In 1944, yet again, a united front was organized between the Korean right and left, and yet again, it dissolved within a year. On the Korean left, the resistance movement to Japanese rule was just a split. Korean communists were composed of three separate groups. Those living in the Soviet Union, about 200,000, those in China working with the Chinese Communist Party, about 400,000, and those Korean communists still secretly living in Korea. The indigenous communists in Korea were led by Pak Hun Young, who emerged as one of the principal contenders for power in Korean communism. Pak was imprisoned by the Japanese but was released by early 1939. Kim Il-sung, in contrast to Rhee and Pak, was not a major figure in 1945. Even in the communist world, he was an obscure figure in relation to other communist leaders like, say, Mao Zedong or Ho Chi Minh. Kim's early life is wrapped in obscurity and propaganda. By most accounts, he came from a peasant family and was born near Pyongyang in 1912. As a boy, his family went into exile, and by some accounts, he attended Chinese schools in Manchuria and started to resist Japanese rule of Korea as early as 1929. In his youth, he worked with the Chinese communist guerrillas and at some point joined the Soviet army. It's important to note that Kim never worked with the local Korean communists until after the war. Kim was a fierce Korean nationalist, yet was shrewd enough to understand he needed Soviet support if he was going to emerge as the leader of Korea. Although heavily reliant on the Soviet Union and China during the Korean War, he became fiercely nationalistic, and he and his regime would outlive the leaders of the era, and even the Soviet Union, not dying until 1994. Unlike Vietnam or China during World War II, neither the United States nor Soviet Union supported resistance forces in Korea. Indeed, the nations most interested in its liberation, China and the Soviet Union, were occupied fighting for their own survival during the era. Soviet interest in Korea was mainly due to the fact that it shared a border with Korea and had been a staging pad for Japanese aggression in the region. Yet facing an existential threat from the Third Reich along their western border, very little Soviet thought was spent on Korea. In 1943, at the Cairo Conference, China, Britain, and the United States agreed that after the war, Korea at some point would be granted independence. At the Tehran Conference, that December, Stalin agreed to join the war in Asia against Japan three months after the defeat of Germany in Europe, and it was agreed that Korea would be held under trusteeship. As a result, in 1945, Soviet and American policy around Korea was more or less in agreement. Korea in 1945 was a country without indigenous political institutions and without indigenous leadership. Its political parties and leaders had all operated overseas for decades. Many of its leaders had only lived in Korea during their youth. Moreover, the bureaucracy that did exist in Korea was the product of Japanese occupation, as was the police. The occupation of the peninsula by the Americans and the Soviets would also add to the complexity and divisions of the political situation in Korea. 
For the Americans, Korea wasn't in their forethoughts until the summer of 1945 when the Joint Chiefs of Staff believed that it had become necessary to occupy at least the southern part of Korea in order to secure Japan against potential Soviet influence. In August 1945, per the promised in Tehran, the Soviets had entered the war against Japan and were advancing quickly into China. The U.S. hoped to prevent the Soviets from occupying all of Korea through reaching a diplomatic agreement with the Soviets to split the occupation of the country at the 38th parallel. The Soviet Union and Stalin had very little interest in Korea, and like the Americans, it was more of an afterthought. Stalin was satisfied with the arrangement and in 1945 saw no need to violate it. Stalin might have felt that Korea, with its poor masses and revolutionary chaos, would naturally drift towards the Soviet sphere of influence once the occupation ended and the American forces left. Soviet troops occupied Korea as planned and adhered to the agreement to divide administration of the country, letting the Americans assume responsibility for the South. Stalin may have also agreed to divide Korea to get Allied agreement to concessions in Eastern Europe and reparations payments from West Germany. Stalin stood to gain very little by opposing an American presence in South Korea. In December 1945, the United States and Soviet Union agreed to create a joint commission between the occupation commands that would submit proposals to their respective governments for the establishment of a provisional Korean government and a four-power trusteeship for a period of up to five years. In retrospect, though, the U.S.-Soviet occupation of Korea, especially without precise agreements on its nature and duration, generally reduced Korea's prospects for a smooth transition towards independence and unity in light of the growing Cold War. As the immediate threat from Germany and Japan disappeared, the two remaining superpowers found it increasingly difficult to reach new agreements or even execute old ones. Because American and Soviet ideology were so divergent, they were unlikely to end up supporting similar factions or actors in Korean politics, contributing to the factionalism that was already dividing Koreans. Korea also became a battleground because it was a test for both respective ideologies, Stalinism in North Korea and democratic capitalism in the South. Neither the United States nor Soviet Union wished to see Korea drift into the opposing ideological camp. General MacArthur did not regard the occupation of Korea as a priority, and American forces under General John R. Hodge didn't arrive until September the 8th, despite numerous policy papers written about Korea from 1943 to 1945, the United States had not prepared for the occupation as it had with Germany and Japan, which we reviewed in past episodes. The American army considered Korea as a disciplinary deployment. Soldiers who were sent to Korea typically did something wrong or bad soldiers. Soldiers stationed there complained about the rural nature of their surroundings. The rice paddy fields stank of human feces, which was still commonly used as fertilizer at the time. Housing was limited, food was strange, roads were poor, and weather extreme. Harsh winter winds that blew in from Siberia and sweltering humid summers punctuated by long downpours of rain. Mud was everywhere, and soldiers quickly became covered in it. As one general said, there were only three things to fear in Japan, gonorrhea, diarrhea, and being sent to Korea. American planners saw Korea as an underdeveloped society that was not ready for independence and would need a period of trusteeship before they could join the community of nations. The United States and the Soviet Union would play the principal roles in trusteeship, 
before Korea could become an independent and unitary state. The United States had hoped to establish a four-power trusteeship over Korea with the U.S., the Soviet Union, Great Britain, and China, with possibly a neutral high commissioner. Possibly a Swiss or a Dutch supported by an advisory council of allied representatives. American bureaucrats were unfamiliar with Korea and didn't understand the nationalist aspirations of the Korean people, nor the social effects that were occurring in Korea as a result of industrialization. Indeed, when the Americans arrived, Korea was in a state of revolutionary upheaval. The pent-up tensions and emotions of the Japanese occupation were still fresh in the minds of Koreans. Plans for trusteeship quickly fell apart as the Koreans were firmly against any form of trusteeship and Hodge, along with other top American officials, ruled it out. The British never liked the trusteeship idea either, as they feared it would be applied to their empire. General Hodge wasn't the best diplomat either when it came to the Korean people. When he first arrived in Korea, he stated that the Japanese and Koreans were, quote, all the same breeds of cat, close quote. He had been a good general, but he made for a poor diplomat and politician. He had no knowledge or training in politics and had no knowledge or understanding of Korea before he arrived. He basically had no guidance either from MacArthur, his regional commander in Japan, or from Washington about how to conduct the occupation. Indeed, the only reason he got the job was because when the war ended, his command, the 24th Corps in Okinawa, was closest to Korea. He kept Japanese officials in their posts after the occupation until educated Koreans could be found to replace them. From an efficiency point of view, this move made sense. Hodge lacked the educated Koreans and U.S. Korean speakers to run the country. Yet politically, this was a pretty foolish move as it enraged the local Korean populace. Despite their united opposition to trusteeship, the Koreans were still deeply divided between those who had collaborated with the Japanese, namely the Korean elite and the police, who came to support Ri, and the revolutionary communists who had established people's committees throughout the country and began to try local landlords and former police officers for crimes committed under the Japanese, akin to the chaos in France following the liberation. In the South, the political situation was dominated by the Committee for the Preparation for, of Korean Independence, CPKI, founded by the left of center but not communist, Yo Un Hung and his supporters. In the waning days of Japanese rule, Yo was formally invited to form a transitional administration in exchange for the release of political prisoners and an end to the crackdown on peasants, workers, and students. On September the 8th, the same day the Americans arrived, the CPKI established the People's Republic of Korea. The CPKI sensed the splits in Korean society and wishing to shorten the Allied occupation, tried to build a political coalition between the right and the left with a mixed cabinet. Ri, although still in the States and unaware, was named chairman of the new government given his reputation and stature among Koreans and with the United States. Ri at 70 in 1945 was also believed to be an old man, and in Korean patriarchal society was considered a source of wisdom and a connection to the Korean past given his noble lineage. Yo regarded the CPKI as a temporary organization until the Allies arrived. Meanwhile, the streets were alive with the political debates, and Koreans argued about the direction of their new found nation. Pak Un-young established the Korean Communist Party in the South.
The temporary government called for a guaranteed civil liberties, land redistribution, universal suffrage, further industrialization, and the nationalization of key industries. The communists within the CPKI, though, moved to gain influence over the government, thus fracturing the left-right coalition. Furthering the political divide in Korea, Hodge refused to consult or recognize the center-left People's Republic, although, to be fair, neither did the Soviets. He instead encouraged the formation of political parties, further splintering the Korean political landscape and moving further away from Korean unity. By November 1945, there were 205 political parties registered with the American military occupation government. He also arranged for Ri and Kim Koo to return to Korea. The Korean right, composed of elites, police, and landlords, were weak, discredited, and despondent force in Korean politics, given their collaboration with the Japanese. Yet its two leaders, Kim Koo and Syngman Rhee, were strong national figures, given their longer-time opposition to Japanese occupation. Rhee and Kim disavowed the People's Republic and called for a center-right government. Kim Koo mistakenly supported the idea of trusteeship in hopes of gaining the support of the Americans, but quickly lost popular support. Kim then reversed course and instigated a series of strikes in opposition to the Americans and called for a new government. Hodge responded by summoning him and threatened to execute him if he double-crossed the Americans again. In June 1949, a gunman assassinated Kim Koo, claiming that Kim worked for the Soviets. However, in 1992, the assassin confessed that he was ordered to assassinate Kim on the orders of Rhee's head of security, Kim Chang Rong, although debate still surrounds the circumstances of his death. Whatever the facts, Rhee was now the undisputed leader of the right-wing Koreans. Meanwhile, geopolitically, friction grew between the Soviet Union and the United States. In Eastern Europe, Stalin imposed vassal states through a process of coups and pressure grew from Washington to ensure Korea established a center-right government. As a result, General Hodge, Rhee, and former OSS officer Preston Goodfellow helped to develop the Representative Democratic Council, or RDC, as of the nucleus of a new center-right government in Korea. Meanwhile, internationally, the Cold War grew. The Allies backed the Greek government against communist insurgents. Fighting also broke out in French Indochina, and the Chinese civil, civil war resumed. In Berlin, the Allies and Soviets faced off against each other as Stalin blockaded the city in June 1948. The Americans and Soviets were not getting along as well when it came to the occupation of Korea. The 38th parallel was not an ideal boundary and economically damaged the country, resulting in economic stagnation. As Korean industry was concentrated in the north and South Korea was dominated by agriculture, primarily rice and sugar, the south also contained the Korean capital Seoul and the bulk of the Korean population. The Americans had failed to send rice shipments to North Korea, which resulted in starvation. In response, the Soviets refused to ship coal to the South. America's introduction of a free market in South Korea had drastically reduced the supply of rice to ship North. No progress was made either in unifying Korea. Soviet and American officials met in Seoul in March 1946, but despite three months of talks, nothing was decided. Seeing how provisional governments had fared in Eastern Europe in 1946 and 1947, the Americans became hesitant about establishing a provisional government in Korea. In October 1946, 
the U.S. conducted elections in the South for an interim government. The Korean right emerged victorious, although the election was marred by violence and voting irregularities. Hodge, seeking the approval of centrists and moderates, appointed many to the interim assembly. Rhee was furious, and Yo, the leader of the moderate left, still refused to recognize the government. The British warned the Americans that the growing tensions in Korea threatened world peace. The British were concerned the Americans were unaware of the dangers of administrating a region of so close to the Soviet Union, and that the consequences of American decisions in Korea could have impacts on other parts of the world. Other than Germany, Korea was the only place where the United States and the Soviet Union came into physical contact in the early Cold War. In retrospect, it was probably unlikely that Korea would remain a united nation given the circumstances of its politics nested within the global confrontation that was the Cold War. By 1947, cooperation between the Americans and the Soviets had broken down over the future of Korea, with the only agreement being a UN-sponsored withdrawal of Soviet and American forces from the peninsula. The U.S. military government in Korea was unpopular, and the American military, political establishment, and public failed to see the value in a long-term commitment to Korea. As outlined in the long telegram, the basis of America's early Cold War strategy, the United States sought the defense of vital economic regions in the Cold War, and Korea wasn't one of these regions. It was considered more or less a backwater region of the world of little value other than its proximity to Japan. Hence, America's strategy by 1947 was to establish a semblance of a government in the South that could withstand insurgent communist forces and allow the withdrawal of American troops. Truman also tried to make more economic aid available to Korea, but with the passing of the Marshall Plan and economic and military assistance for Greece and Turkey, the Congress balked at giving more taxpayers' money to distant lands unfamiliar to the American public. Rhee was also opposed to talks between the Americans and Soviets over Korea and opposed trusteeship. Hodge was irate with Rhee, but Rhee, unlike Kim Koo, had great anti-communist credentials and a lot of powerful friends back in Washington. Hodge and the U.S. State Department couldn't bully Rhee into doing what they wanted him to do. The economy in South Korea was also a mess the United States wanted to step away from. Inflation continued to grow unchecked, and one million refugees from the north, along with Koreans returning from Japan and China, flooded the streets. Lack of coal from North Korea caused power outages and a lack of heating fuel. Communists from the north took full advantage of the situation, calling for strikes and protests. The situation wasn't helped either by the savage crackdown of the police, magnifying resentments towards Rhee and the American military occupation. Deaths from riots and strikes numbered into the hundreds, and in the end required the intervention of American forces to bring the strikes and riots to a close. The United States, therefore, intended to have the issue of Korea handed over to the United Nations, as the British had done in India and Palestine. In this way, the U.S. could offload the Korea's problems to the world community and incorporate the withdrawal of U.S. and Soviet forces under an international agreement. It should also be noted, around this very same time, the administration was ending its support for nationalist China and Chiang Kai-shek. America was trying to economize its international commitments and step away from its more problematic allies like Rhee and Chiang Kai-shek. The UN at the time, if you remember from episode 37, was a much smaller body than it is today and dominated by the United States and its allies in Europe and Latin America. 
As a result of colonialism, most African and Asian countries still lacked representation. The communist world, in contrast, had far less representation in the world body. Syngman Rhee, by 1948, had established a strong position in the country. He was the most ruthless and cunning politician in South Korea, but he wasn't very popular. His primary concern was consolidating his own power base, building up the government, and securing American economic and military assistance, and unifying Korea under his leadership. Yet, he faced a number of serious challenges. Hyperinflation, rampant corruption, and fear of a North Korean invasion from 1948 on. The South Korean economy was heavily dependent on American support, and Rhee had totally failed to understand the economic challenges South Korea faced. He circumvented the Constitution and funded the construction of a police state as his autocratic tendencies came to the forefront. Rhee, although philosophically democratic, saw those who criticized him not as political opponents but as traitors. In January 1950, he passed the National Security Law, which allowed the police to arrest anyone accused of communist sympathies. You might be asking, how could the United States support Rhee after passing such a law? But there were similar harsh laws on the books in the United States and Great Britain and Japan that had been passed against communists and homosexuals. So it wasn't out of the ordinary. Rhee, nevertheless, used this law not only to arrest communists, but to silence his political opponents. It was obvious that Rhee was using the law to intimidate the National Assembly, and in April 1950, the U.S. warned Rhee that his autocratic actions would adversely affect relations with Washington. Meanwhile, in North Korea, Kim Il-sung, although the leader of the new North Korean regime, was not the absolute ruler yet that he would become later in life. The Soviet Union and Communist China held great sway in North Korea and had their supporters within the Korean Communist Party. Indeed, many Koreans had lived and fought in China against the Japanese, and two divisions, or about 20,000 Communist Koreans, had remained in China to aid Mao's forces in the Chinese Civil War. The Soviet Union, like the United States, had made few preparations for the occupation of North Korea. Yet the Soviets improvised and adapted to the situation, utilizing the People's Committees we spoke about earlier. Initial Soviet behavior was brutal as the Soviets plundered the countryside, murdering civilians and raping women. The Koreans retaliated and Soviet soldiers had to travel in threes at night to ensure their safety. Yet, from the beginning of 1946 on, Soviet troops were well-disciplined and efficient in their administration of North Korea. They weren't loved by the Koreans, but they were respected. Soviet policy from late 1945 through 1946 was to encourage cooperation between left-wing democratic forces and the Korean Communist Party. Japanese officials and collaborators were quickly replaced by Korean communist exiles from China and the Soviet Union. In December 1945, Kim Il-sung was established as the head of the Korean Communist Party. Yet there remained a latent rivalry between Kim and Pak Hun-young, the leader of the communists in South Korea. Pak was the foreign minister and head of the Southern Workers' Party in the South. Pak's role in the government strengthened the legitimacy of the North Korean regime as being the representative of all Koreans, North and South. According to a U.S. Embassy report, the North Korean Workers' Party was composed of some 700,000 people in a pyramid structure. At the base of the party were 680,000 members, composed of illiterate farmers and factory workers. The next level that ran the party was composed of Soviet-trained members and some members who had fought and worked in China. 
Above them were semi-educated members, numbering a few thousand, the officers of the party. At the very top were the Soviet-trained elites like Kim and those who had led Korean forces in China during World War II, although the Soviet-sponsored members were clearly calling the shots. In response to events in the South and the CPKI, the North Korean Interim People's Committee, or NKIPC, was established in February 1946. Kim Il-sung headed the NKIPC, and with its help and the help of the Soviet authorities, Kim consolidated his rule of North Korea and established the North Korean Army, which was composed of lightly armed former guerrilla fighters who had fought in China against the Japanese. Popular land reforms were also quickly implemented. Landlords and rich peasants were broken, having their property confiscated, many of whom fled south. I want to take a moment here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, and covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment. If you like episodes about military history like this episode or episodes about the Malayan Emergency or the French War in Indochina, help us by making a donation or spreading the word. To make a donation, visit our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. After making a donation, the best thing you can do to help the podcast is to spread the word. Share your favorite episodes on Facebook or tell a friend or give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so you can get access to our commercial-free episodes. Also, for Patreon listeners, we're going to be having special short after-episode segments talking about the show you just listened to. So become a Patreon member to catch the after the, sh- the after show and get the special content. Now back to the show. From 1948 on, the UN became more involved in Korean affairs as a result of the general resolution passed by the UN and sponsored by the United States that elections should be held in both North and South Korea to create a national assembly and then a unified Korean government. The Soviet Union rejected the UN interference in Korea and argued that the Koreans should be left alone to create their own nation after the withdrawal of foreign troops from the peninsula. The Soviets also remembered that the free elections that they had held in Eastern Europe in 1946 and 1947 had not gone their way. Moreover, with more people located in the South, Ri was bound to become the leader of any unified Korea, and having a longtime American ally located along their eastern border was not agreeable to Stalin. Direct UN activity in Korea began with the establishment of UNTOC, the United Nations Temporary Commission on Korea. UNTOC was to observe the planned election and advise in the establishment of a new independent and unified Korean government no later than March 31, 1948. American and Soviet forces would then withdraw within three months of a new government being formed. UNTOC faced a challenging mission. A portion of the UN opposed their mission, actually. The South Koreans didn't view them as a serious as they saw UNTOC as a veneer of political cover for the Americans to establish South Korea and then leave. North Korea had no intention of cooperating, and the U.S. wanted the commission to complete its task quickly without asking awkward questions. UNTOC's mission became virtually impossible in January 1948 when North Koreans denied UNTOC access, meaning they could not observe the election north of the 38th. While in South Korea, they did have the opportunity to meet with South Korean and American leaders, UNTOC was blocked from viewing electoral arrangements. 
Beyond that, Untalk lacked the personnel to oversee an election of 20 million people over 40,000 square miles. Elections in the South took place on May the 10th, 1948, despite protests. The new assembly with a hundred unfilled seats for non-existent representatives from North Korea drafted and approved a new constitution with Rhee as the first president. In response, on August the 25th, the Soviets established a Supreme People's Assembly that formally created the DPRK, or the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, with Kim Il-sung as the premier. With the peninsula now housing two different indigenous governments, each claiming jurisdiction over the entire country, a major precondition for war was now firmly in place. Their ideologies were dramatically opposed, as were the ideologies of their great power sponsors. Despite the establishment of a government, the situation in South Korea remained chaotic. The National Assembly was dominated by large landowners who resisted Rhee's efforts to dominate the nation. The Korean Democratic Party had backed Rhee for president, but saw the role as more ceremonial and tried to control the government through the legislative branch. The Assembly also attacked the power of the police force and the bureaucracy, which quickly became allies of Rhee and the power struggle between the two branches. Land reform was another hot-button issue for the new government. Land reform had been very popular in North Korea and in Japan under the U.S. occupation. The U.S. military wanted to have land reform in the South, but the landlords and, by default, the National Assembly opposed the move and, in the end, only formally owned Japanese land was dispersed. Many other landowners, expecting the eventual passage of the reforms, forced their tenants to buy at exorbitant prices. Complicating the situation further, North and South Koreans were engaging in sporadic fighting on the border. In January 1949, several border clashes between the South Koreans and North Korean police forces took place as South Korean police attempted to arrest people. North Korea retaliated with its own cross-border raids, which were rebuffed by the Republic of Korea's army. In North Korea and in Moscow, fears circulated that the South might invade the North, and in May 1949, the South Korean army advanced two and a half miles above the line and attacked several North Korean villages. Fighting also broke out at Kaesong and Chinchon. The North Koreans had repulsed the South Koreans, but the situation had been dangerous for the young regime. Most of its units were equipped with old Japanese rifles, with only three to ten rounds of ammunition supplied to each soldier. These incidents spurred Soviet efforts to equip the North Korean forces. Stalin was worried that once the Americans left, the South Koreans might invade the North, sensing its military weakness. On March the 17th, 1949, the Soviet Union concluded a 10-year agreement to provide North Korea economic and technical support, providing North Korea with a loan of 212 million rubles. Whether these cross-border incursions were ordered by Seoul or the decisions of local commanders is unclear. The Republic of Korea's government, from the records we have, doesn't seem to have had a clear objective or goal in having these raids. Indeed, it's my suspicion they were the result of anti-guerrilla operations being conducted on the border. The U.S. government during the period objected to these incidences and refused to endorse a South Korean invasion of the North. At this point, General Hodge, who felt like the assignment was beyond his capabilities and that Rhee, the soon-to-be president of South Korea, hated him, asked to resign from his post and be replaced, which he was by General John B. Uh, Coulter, the next most senior officer in Korea. 
During 1948, unrest in South Korea reached serious levels. A major rebellion broke out, beginning on Siju Island with guerrillas seizing coastal towns. Ri responded by declaring martial law. The press was censored and mass arrests of his political opponents took place. The rebellion was brutally crushed by police and right-wing nationalists, with both sides committing atrocities during the fighting. 3,000 policemen were also mutinied against the state during the fighting and refused to go to Siju, who themselves had to be suppressed. Fighting died down after the election, but sparked up again in October and again in January 1949. It had been estimated that the Siju Rebellion resulted in 30,000 deaths. In retrospect, the rebellion probably had little to do with the North Korean regime or the Soviet Union and was more the result of the remoteness of the island from the Korean mainland and the tenuous nature of the government authority on the island mixed with the old grievances against Seoul. Indeed, after the defeat of the rebels on Siju, guerrilla activity gradually subsided. Guerrilla activity reached its peak in September 1949 when approximately 3,000 to 3,200 guerrillas were operating in South Korea. South Korean police and army operations succeeded in reducing guerrilla strength and by March 1950, roughly 400 guerrillas were thought to be still alive. North Korea attempted to send reinforcements to triple this number but by April 1950, the number had only grown to 577. The guerrillas who slipped over the border were young men from the ages of 17 to 25. They were thoroughly indoctrinated and possessed an excellent morale. There were very few desertions, and a strong bond of loyalty existed between the guerrillas. Yet their actions were having very little impact overall on the re-regime. Their attacks were often indiscriminate and sporadic, killing the occasional landlord, local official, or policeman. Guerrillas were restricted to mountainous regions, and ordinary farmers took the brunt of their attacks. They were seemingly incapable of retaining control over areas or winning the hearts and minds of most local peasants. The South Korean army and police also worked closely together to root out and destroy these guerrilla cells. Moreover, villages on the border had been stepped up, and it became difficult to move reinforcements across the border. The Republic of Korea was also buttressed by a good harvest in the fall of 1949 and a U.S. economic aid program that started to help stabilize the economy. U.S. arms and advisors also aided the efforts of the South Koreans in fighting the guerrillas. The anti-guerrilla activities tied down five army regiments and some 10,000 policemen. Yet the threat of invasion, which had seemed so imminent in 1948 and 1949, had subsided by 1950, and there had been fewer border incidents. Part of this may have been as a result of the successful anti-guerrilla operations, but Bree was also frightened by the American refusal to save Ch uh, nationalist China in their civil war against Mao. The Americans had warned the South Koreans that they firmly supported them in defensive measures, but should South Korea invade the North, the U.S. would not support such an adventure. The United States hence wanted to leave South Korea with an army designed to maintain internal order and defeat communist internal insurgency. Yet they were unwilling to leave the South Koreans and modern army with tanks, artillery, planes, or ships. So you're asking yourself, why not? For one, they were afraid Ri might invade North Korea and inadvertently start World War III. On multiple occasions, he had spoken of using military means to unite the peninsula, and by 1949, it was pretty clear they couldn't control him. 
Second, with the creation of NATO in 1949 and the weakness of American military forces, there wasn't much equipment to go around. The U.S. Army was already under strength. It's also important to remember from our earlier episodes that it was unusual for America to maintain a large standing army in peacetime in the period leading up to the Cold War, and that the U.S. had invested a lot of faith in the deterrence of the atomic bomb. Therefore, the American plan called for leaving Korea a well-trained army of some 65,000 men, adequate for maintaining political order inside South Korea, a Coast Guard of 4,000 men, and a police force of 35,000, possessing small arms and ammunition. The United States also assumed with the withdrawal of American and Soviet forces, the Koreans would be less willing to provoke each other as the two sides would be evenly matched. By May 1950, the Republic of Korea's army had some 100,000 men, yet with supplies and spare parts only supporting 50,000 men for six months. As a result, there were shortages of critical equipment like ammunition. Between 10 to 15 percent of ROC army equipment and 30 to 35 percent of its vehicles were unserviceable. Lacking indigenous industry, they were incapable of providing their own spare parts as well. The ROC Army also lacked the morale and, and belief in regime, in contrast to the high morale of the North Korean Army. In conclusion, the Korean War is often remembered in American history as the Forgotten War, a war between the clear struggle and victory of World War II, the Good War, and the defeat and division of, of Vietnam, the Bad War. Yet, what is often forgot is that in many ways the roots of the Korean War lay in the failed American occupation of Korea, 1945 to 1950. America's mismanagement of the Korean occupation wasn't the only factor leading to the Korean War, but it's clear that it was a contributing cause, which set the table for the conflict that erupted in the months following the U.S. withdrawal. It remains uncertain if different American leadership and better occupation planning could have averted the Korean War. The Soviets, as in Eastern Europe, allowed non-communist and center-left-wing parties in North Korea. It's probable that with the right leadership and attention from Washington, Korea could have become like Austria or Finland in the Cold War, with a center-left government neutral in the conflict, ensuring the safety and security of both Japan and China without the need for millions of deaths. The People's Republic, with its center-left framework, certainly represented a promising path to peaceful Korean unity versus the re-regime that followed in its wake. It, unlike the DPRK and ROC, was composed of indigenous Koreans who were attempting to achieve coalition government and political unity. By disavowing the People's Republic, the U.S. attached all its hopes and re, despite the warning signs of his despotic ways. Had another leader been backed, or the opposition left, left intact, the U.S. could have left South Korea with a better armed forces, which could have deterred a North Korean invasion. Finally, it's clear that the United States failed to really take responsibility in Korea seriously, which largely contributed to the failure of the occupation. The U.S. planned extensively for the occupation of Japan and Germany, with experts being brought together for both occupations. Korea was not viewed as important, and the situation was allowed to drift, which in the long run cost the U.S. much more to rectify the situation. Hodge should never have been in charge of the occupation. Moreover, he should have received much more guidance and oversight from Washington and his regional commander, MacArthur, who had much more success administering Japan. Next episode, we will look at the controversy of who started the Korean War. 
Some claimed the war was a conspiracy to boost defense spending. Others that the war was provoked by the South Koreans and CIA. Whereas traditionally, the war has been seen as a series of political miscalculations and begun by the North Koreans with Moscow's blessing. We will look at the evidence for each argument and which argument I favor. As always, I want to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it on social media or tell a friend about it. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with their friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in us getting more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you're already a contributor but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. While there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.